0: Hey listeners, Marinella here. Before we start, just a content note. In this episode, we talk fanfiction, and in this context, the conversation leads us to discuss issues of consent, lack of consent, and stuff like DoveCon, amongst, you know, other quote unquote taboo topics that we explore through fan work. So, just letting you know in case you want to skip this one or save it for later. Um, okay, on to season two of The Intersection of Things.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. Who are you? I'm Ruth kustik Deal, And who are you?
0: <laughs> I am your co-host, Mariana Ramos-Capello, and we are tackling a really awesome theme this time. Fan fiction. What is fan fiction?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I always think of it as being writing that is done by fans about works, people, stories that already exist or they're familiar with you know other books other stories that are out there and then taking ideas from those and pulling them out and creating new stories but I have to say this seems to come up a lot of the time when it comes to definitions when I was looking into this in advance I found that there was a massive survey recently from a podcast called Fansplaining. They literally asked all of their listeners to define fanfiction, And then they did a mm. whole thing of like, how does everyone define it? And it was really interesting, super detailed. Goes into how everyone takes really different approaches. Is it about being a fan? Do you have to be a fan to write fanfiction? What if you're writing about something you didn't like? but you want to make it better. So maybe not always a fan. Does it have to always be fictional? What if you write a fake recipe book from a world that you like? That's not even fictional. Oh,
0: so then that's there, cool.
1: you can go all off. But, you know, that's, that's a rough definition. Yeah,
0: I mean, and it's not only writing. It's about creating works that are based on other works, basically. It could be uh, painting pictures, of your favorite characters in alternative universes. It could be songs and podcasts and other storylines expressed in very a variety of, of mediums too. So
1: Yeah. And it's a thing that's come with a lot of culture and terminology. And I know during the rest of this podcast we're going to use a bunch of those terms. So the word canon comes up and that's usually refers to what is actually in The original text, the origin text, that's the canon stuff. And then sometimes people talk about fanon, which is like overall what the fandom thinks and says. Um, People use terms like AU, alternate universe, imagining your favorite characters in a different timeline, a different world, and OCs, which mean original characters, people that you came up with but placed into an existing world. For instance, imagining an original character going to Hogwarts. What's OTP? My one true pairing. There's also a one truth <laughs> O T three. One true three. Whoa. I, I have a one true three. Wow.
0: Also, um, there's headcanon. Yes. Isn't it like something that you yourself consider that's that's your shit? Like that's that's what you choose to believe in your head. Even if it's not canon canon. This is like, y- yep, yeah. John and Sherlock are gay. That's my headcanon, period.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. Like there, there is a whole realm of study about The terminology and words that have come out of the fanfiction community. Yeah,
0: so it seems like for as long as we've been telling stories as communities and people, there's always been, I don't want to say derivative works, but works that make use of these stories and these characters. And kind of we um, create new spin-offs and new alternatives. And now this has a term called fanfiction and the internet has allowed communities to share all of those works and to have a conversation around them and to, well, basically help create culture based on on this. So there are a lot of really interesting conversations that come from fan fiction, particularly because these are storylines that go outside what the canon is. So you can explore other themes, have fun with characters. So obviously this (laughs) leads us into interesting territory in terms yeah. of in terms of what Ruth
1: Well I was thinking that you know we we this is a podcast about tech and I think one of the things that's interesting with like technology and fan fiction is how it has created more close-knit communities and also expanded those communities and brought new people in I know that a lot of this stuff used to come where people would write little zines of stories and then get you know, invite people to submit something, make a little tiny magazine, print photocopies of it, take it to a convention, people then pick up copies of it. Like the distribution of stories was really slow. And now it can be instant and it can be varied and you can bring new people in all the time and you can have stories in conversation with one another really instantaneously. You can see a story and say, I'm going to write a sequel to that now, today. I'm going to write something about what is happening in the world in this moment. And people can read it straight away and I think that's really beautiful. And then as we're going to get into a little bit later, I think there's some really interesting stuff about archiving fan fiction, which wasn't as possible before. The fact that you can keep a record in like essentially create a library of fan fiction i think is pretty fascinating because otherwise there's a lot of really good writing like i think that's a thing people often don't admit, but some fantastic writing in fan fiction. A lot of people who are professional authors themselves or become are writing great stuff, and then we're just losing it otherwise. So the fact that it's archived and held onto on the internet is actually quite exciting, and I hope you know some more studies going to come about what we what we're leaving behind there. Yeah, and I mean just earlier we were talking
0: about fan fiction communities. I mean we speak English, we have this podcast in English. Well, I speak Spanish too, but what do you know about communities that are based based in in other countries. Is fan fiction a thing that happens everywhere? What have you heard? I
1: definitely wouldn't say I know a lot about it, but I am dead confident that there are communities of fan fiction in pretty much everywhere, because I think it's just a natural way to respond to stories. I know it's a thing, again, I'm just mentioning this Fansplaining podcast that they talked about recently. They had someone calling in and talking about Their experience of fan communities in Morocco and what they were currently talking about in relation to Riverdale, the Netflix show. And I think it's pretty important to remember that, you know, everywhere has the internet and has these same opportunities. You know, we're just mostly interacting with the internet that's written in the English language. But that doesn't mean that there's all there is out there. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. And that's why we've also brought
0: on an expert. We are very lucky to have a guest today in the podcast, Milena Popova. They are a scholar who um, has devoted some time thinking and a lot of brain power to explore consent in fanfiction and to just poke around and ask questions about the importance of these communities both on the internet but also you know as a larger cultural phenomenon so let's head to the interview so thank you for joining us uh milena for this interview on fan fiction and consent and all of these awesome things for the intersection of things um but before we start can you please introduce yourself
2: sure um am. Over. I'm a bit of a geek of all trades. Over the last five or so years, I've been doing some research on fan fiction, cultural activism, and specifically sexual consent in fan fiction, and how that might be seen as a form of cultural activism where people think through some of the issues of um, around sexual consent in quite interesting and specific ways.
1: Kind of wanted to kick off with talking about fan fiction obviously this is the topic of the episode and wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the culture of fan fiction is working on the internet these days like I get the sense that there's like a very strong fan fiction community I see a lot of stuff about how people support one another in reading there's like this whole thing about beta readers that like people really connect with one another yeah. in the is not just put something out and then that's it and i was wondering if you could say a little bit about what that phenomena is
2: like sure i mean one of the things that i'd probably say first is that it isn't a single community there are many many different fanfiction communities and they kind of split into different sub-communities as well but um one of the kind of big distinctions between different communities is what platforms they use. So the communities that I've particularly been researching live on something called the Archive of Our Own and until fairly recently also on Tumblr and we're seeing a big shift right Mm. now, um, a community in flux trying to find a a different home since Tumblr banned um, adult content back in December 2018. So it's, it's an interesting time in fan fiction, probably not a not a good time right now in some ways, because people are losing each other, those communities are kind of falling apart and trying to find new spaces to be. But there are other communities as well, so there are communities on platforms like um, Wattpad, there are various commercial platforms where people do read and write fanfiction, there's still fanfiction.net, even though most of us tend to forget about that, so there's there's different communities, some of which overlap, some of which are completely separate. Um, One of the things I find interesting about fanfiction, it is very much a communal experience on both the reading and the writing of it and people use it to talk to each other and to have some really in-depth, profound conversations through fanfiction and through the kind of things that happen around fanfiction, whether that's discussions, comments exchanges and fests where people will prompt and ask for a particular type of story. Those are all ways in which that community keeps sustaining itself and also keeps thinking about some really interesting things.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of that on Tumblr myself where I see people I like just getting asks being like, write me a fic about your OC plus my favourite character from this TV show or from the computer game people just like write a little 300 word story straight off the bat of that which i always find really fascinating yeah. you didn't know you were going to write that story yeah
2: absolutely and people make great friendships doing that sort of thing and hopefully we'll all find ways of kind of keeping those communities going even though platforms shift and that's a, a very long history of fanfic that platforms shift under us and we kind of keep migrating and keep going to different and new places
0: but it's not a fun time so in many ways the tumblr apocalypse was not i mean quote unquote the tumblr apocalypse (laughs) was not new or a first time was it any different from anything that has happened before like in terms of scale yeah Yeah. good question i think in some ways
2: it's very similar to some of the other things that have happened so fanfiction.net banned adult content back in oh the early 2000s live journal had several ways of Trying to get rid of undesirable content, um, sort of mid to late 2000s as well, and communities went elsewhere. And that kind of coincided with Tumblr emerging as a platform. I think scale is probably one thing. Um, another is that between the Live Journal fiasco with Striker and Bolt through and Tumblr becoming a thing and the Tumblr apocalypse. Fan fiction has become a lot more mainstream and more acceptable in some ways. Still, still marginalized, still stigmatized in many ways, but also has gained a lot of mainstream visibility. And um, a lot of that is how the community has moved on in seeing itself. Some of it is driven by things like um, the Organization for Transformative Works, which has founded in I think two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, and very much has a mandate to advocate for fan fiction, not just. In, the, in cultural spaces but also legally, um, and they have made a fantastic set of legal arguments both in the US and in Europe around fan fiction being genuinely transformative work, genuinely valuable and therefore in its own right having copyright protection. So that's removed a lot of the external pressure on the community to kind of hide and try and stay out of the eyes of the powers that be. So I think that kind of self-confidence is probably new and that understanding of the community's own value and also Along with that, the fact that the archive of our own exists and is a fan-owned, fan-run archive that nobody will try and pull out from under our feet because it was founded specifically on the principle that they will publish anything that is legal within their jurisdiction, and they will continue to do so, and they're supported entirely by fan donations, um, means that actually there is a bit more of a stable base for people to call home while also searching for other platforms to go to.
1: So, like, why do people keep coming for? Fan fiction in terms of adult content. What's the obsession with trying to, you know, remove all that from the internet? um I don't think
2: Tumblr was necessarily targeting fan fiction because most of what it says in their terms of service is actually visual porn that they object to. I think what what's happened is that fan fiction communities have got caught up in that. So Tumblr in itself was a very visual platform. So people who were in the active in the fan fiction community, also started doing stuff with in visual media, whether that's gift sets, uh, mood boards. There's a whole bunch of like mini art forms that have emerged on Tumblr that we're now seeing die out because people are leaving the platform. But obviously, with and fan artists is another one uh, where Tumblr made it very easy to share. So with Tumblr banning the visual side of things people are just going well we're losing this is such an integral part of our community now because of how it's been driven by tumblr that there's no point in us hanging around here anymore if we can't do all of the fun porny visual stuff as well as the
0: fanfic stuff yeah the mythical female presenting nipple (laughs) exactly (laughs) comes back
1: yeah so i know that what you've been doing is a lot of research on consent in fanfiction. so why is this the focus of your work and what have you found out doing that
2: why is it the focus of my work i think because about five years ago i had an epiphany that the the snappy version is everything i know about consent i know from fanfic and that's not entirely true but it is scarily close to true um Mm. in that i had Mm. hung out in various feminist spaces i'd read zines i'd done a whole bunch of other stuff and i'd learned from those spaces but actually fan fiction and those communities had provided me with a space where I could think about consent in ways that were different qualitatively to how we'd do it in those activist spaces. Um, and it's it's much more based off lived experience and based off um, feelings and emotions that our kind of more mainstream day-to-day discourse around consent and around sexual violence doesn't really have the space to handle. We don't really talk about how consent feels, or how the absence of consent feels, how dubious Mm. consent feels. And in fact, dubious consent is probably fan fiction's greatest gift to the world when it comes to thinking about sexuality and consent, because it it's a concept, and in fan fiction, it gets shortened to Dubcon. Um, it's a concept that really makes visible this massive grey area between something very fluffy and consensual on the one hand and outright rape on the other. And we start suddenly thinking through a whole bunch of situations where, well, it may not be outright rape, but it's not particularly consensual And It may be things like power differentials in a relationship where it's more difficult to say no to something. It may be a one partner being dependent on the other financially or for immigration status or whatever it is and those are the kinds of situations that fan fiction really teases out and looks at the emotional impact of it and looks at how can we level some of those power imbalances and how can we make it consensual or what 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 would need to be true for this relationship to be genuinely equal and consensual Um, and if you think about how media and the law in particular position rape versus consent there's a very sharp dividing line in between them there's there's no gray area in between whereas fan fiction just explodes that and makes that massive gray area visible Hmm.
1: you know when you talk about consent and fan fiction i mean one thing that i've always been wondering about lately is about when people write fanfiction about real people Mm -hmm. and whether or not the real people should be able to consent in that. Like I've seen, you know, fanfiction about celebrities or people sort of merging Sherlock into Benedict Cumberbatch fanfiction. And, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with some of the stuff where people read out fanfiction in front of the actors and then make them feel embarrassed because it's like, something that involves their character having sex and then they're reading about this and they're like well that's not what my character would do and they're definitely not consenting to listening to that they're fan fiction not. you can tell they just yeah. don't want to know about that yeah. and then that's like question: like you know they don't want to know about it but if it comes to actually writing about them as a person should they have some control over that or is it better to just be like just don't learn about it (laughs) It, it, (laughs) it's a really thorny question it's a it's a question i've actually
2: written a couple of papers on as well but one of the ways that i try and see it is actually what happens in people's minds when they are writing that fan fiction about that celebrity do they think that they're writing about the real person do they think they're writing a fictionalized character based on that person do they think it's something completely different and Honestly, it's a mixture of all of these things. Um, There are absolutely tin hatters out there who will swear and go and attack people for saying that these two people, the real celebrities that they ship, are not in a relationship. Um, And I've seen a lot of that on the internet where people just come up with these massive conspiracy theories going... No, they're definitely in a relationship, despite there being no actual evidence. And you know what, those are subcultures, they happen, I've not actually looked into those in any great detail. But there's also the kinds of communities that are, okay, we know that this is quite good fun, we're, that it's quite fictional, we actually understand that we're probably making, particularly when we're writing about cishet white men, we're probably making those characters that we're building off them a lot more, a lot nicer frequently a lot more feminist, a lot better people than those people might be in real life. So people are quite aware that that's happening and that's the case and they're not really pretending that that is the real person. So it's more of a, we're creating a fictional persona based on what's already the public performance of by a celebrity. Um, of themselves rather than their private person. And then you get into some really messy situations where this is a fandom that I was personally in and then I ended up studying as part of my PhD research um, because one of the celebrities that was a big name in that fandom uh, ended up being accused of rape. And that fandom had a massive crisis as to whether they could continue legitimately being fans of that person, or whether they could continue writing fan fiction about that person. And ultimately, broadly speaking, it fell apart, because they worked out that, you know, well, as much as we know that this is a fun fictional character that we've created based off this person, we can't quite reconcile that and our emotional investment in that character with what the real person is alleged to have done. Mm. Yeah, there's no easy answers, but it's it's quite an interesting dynamic that does happen in those fandoms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to um rescue something you said earlier mm-hmm. about how fan fiction allows us to explore how consent feels or the lack of consent yeah. feels like very emotional. I don't know, emotional but like the the feel part yeah. of it. And I wanted to ask you um since we're seeing like all of these platforms impose rules that are basically like based on like morality or what's right, what's wrong. How do you see fan fiction almost like an avenue to explore things that are taboo? How do platforms can be like, well, this is all fiction. you can write about this terrible awful thing is there yeah what's your reaction to that Um, and we're talking obviously about like things that are not like before homosexuality would have been a taboo mm. but you know more and more like incest and rape and things yeah i mean
2: people absolutely do explore rape in quite a lot of detail In, in some fan fiction people do explore incest and all sorts of other things and sometimes it's subtle and sometimes it is very very in your face And sometimes it's done very well. And sometimes, frankly, it's not um, because it's a big community with lots of people who are many of whom are still kind of going through that learning process themselves. Um, In terms of platforms, I think we come back to what's the what platforms do we live on as communities? Um, And there's the big distinction for me between platforms that are commercial and profit driven that need to sell a particular image of their users to their advertisers. And that's part of what's been happening behind the the scenes in, in Tumblr. Um, is trying to make that platform a lot more acceptable to advertisers. And the vast majority of popular platforms out there fall into that bracket, unfortunately. And then you have things like the Archive of Rome that are community-run by the community for the community, where the interest is very much not, like, AO3 is literally sustained entirely by donations. It's never going to be sustained by anything else other than donations. They're never going to sell their users to advertisers. So their interest is very much the community's interest and trying to provide a space for the community to do those things within the limits of, The jurisdictions they're in. Um, So there is Mm -hmm. some content that they can't publish, but most of it they can, and therefore they will, because it's important for people. And again, if if you're thinking about, okay, we're exploring things like rape and incest, um, that's frequently survivors exploring those things, or it's frequently people who've been affected in other ways. You sometimes get the sensationalizing reports of, oh my God, there's all of this rape porn. Well, yes, but mostly it's survivors trying to kind of work through it rather than people just getting off on it. And sometimes
0: it's a bit of both,
2: but that's the fun gray area right.
0: of porn. <laughs> yeah, and now talking a little bit of, of a fan fiction and the communities that form it, we wanted to ask you like, why do you think this particular communities are overwhelmingly either composed by women or gender queer people? I think there's a quote um, that in AO3 users identify as genderqueer more than uh, male, yep. or more users identify as genderqueer rather than yep. male why do you think what's unique about this that allows these well radical spaces that are not quite the norm um, to exist
2: it's a it's a good question uh, and it's kind of one of the foundational questions of fan studies is why do straight women like reading and writing about men banging and one of the answers is actually most of us are the straight (laughs) early fan studies scholars assumed But I think it is one of those things that it was started by probably queer women or certainly women back in, and it depends a little bit actually on how you view the history of fan fiction. Um, There's kind of two origin stories of fan fiction that I tell to my undergraduates and one of them is this started in the 1960s, 1970s with Star Trek fandom Um, and it's been predominantly women and it's been predominantly this kind of derivative literature throughout. and the other origin story is actually well, look at Homer. Homer was writing fan fiction, um, and so was who came after him, and so was Shakespeare, and so was Milton when he wrote Paradise Lost. Yeah, and actually, if we start seeing culture as this as this space that kind of builds on previous works and take that. Okay, a lot of works are derivative, while a lot of works build on each other. We then get this break in the 1700s with the Statute of Queen Anne, which creates copyright as a thing to incentivize creators to write more stuff, allegedly. And that's kind of part of a change in thinking in the European Enlightenment, where we suddenly start going from much more communal culture to valuing what we would call originality but that originality is gendered and also racialized as white men's originality in particular Mm. Uh, and that's where we get this kind of breaking culture where we go from communal to original and individual and women's culture and other marginalized cultures, also racialized cultures become kind of submerged in that and become these devalued marginalized cultures that are um, again, still communal and still not, not seen as original or as valuable in their own right. And I think fan fanfic- modern fan fiction builds much more on that tradition than it does on the tradition of white males, originality if you will
1: yeah that's interesting and it's funny how like we accept parodies i think and certain kind of like rewrites that happen in mainstream fiction you know if someone does write a new sherlock novel or a new james bond novel and that happens quite often and that's not seen as fan fiction but fundamentally it is the same thing absolutely um
2: jasper ford bless him does not write fan fiction at all everything he writes is fan fiction (laughs) um but yeah as soon as it's a white man who's writing it's not fan fiction it's it's art um and when it's women writing it particularly when it's non-commercial it's derivative and horrible and absolutely valueless and one of the interesting things for me is actually that lack of commercial pressure on fan fiction and that underground Mm. feel to it and that external pressure of kind of it's devalued, it's marginalized, actually makes it into this space where you can do some really exciting things, where you can experiment, where people can learn, where you can do some very risky things that you can't do in something that you're trying to sell.
0: Mm. Wow. I can't stop thinking now about The Lion King being an alternative universe for Hamlet. I'm like, ah, (laughs) The Lion King is fan fiction. (laughs) Disney hasn't
2: done anything original in like more decades than than I can count. (laughs) Disney's also a big driver behind the extension of copyright terms and therefore kind of continuing to... Take away from the culture that we can build on.
1: Yeah, I do always find that ironic that like most of Disney properties are just retelling fairy yeah. tales and then claiming ownership of yeah. them, and it's just like none of this is your stuff anyway. <laughs> Why are you saying no one else yeah. can do anything with Quite. it? <laughs> well, and there's a. a-
0: an important amount of labor that goes into the creation and the reimagining of these stories, right? I remember, was it Sherlock, I think, the latest one, the BBC thing that people came up with? I think there was a scene that Tumblr sort of went crazy, not a scene, an episode, because it seemed that they were mocking fan fiction. So conversations started happening around like, wait a second, are you just kind of stealing the storylines that you like that we already wrote for you and then putting them as canon and at the same time mocking the crazy fangirl and it's always a fangirl or someone who's definitely not a cool person. Yes, absolutely. I was just like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a fan of Steve (sighs) Moffat. Yeah, no.
1: Yeah, we all just stop and shake our heads. (laughs) Steve Moffat. Side note, complete side note, but I started watching Elementary last year and it's such a bad take on Sherlock. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've only seen a couple. Of things. Bad or better? Way better. Way better. Yeah. I really like it because yeah. it's Sherlock who is an actually empathetic person and I think that's more in keeping with the original Sherlock. You know he actually cares about people that is what motivates him to solve crimes. I mean like yes he has a lot of awkwardness and isn't always smooth at getting on with people but that doesn't mean he doesn't care about people. Yeah. It seems more like those are two different things in his head he might care in the way he expresses himself he's not good at that and i think that feels much better yeah um yeah that's my side recommendation <laughs> that i'm just throwing out there I, I will get
2: back into it i've seen a couple of seasons but kind of <laughs> fell out of it but it's back on netflix isn't it so
1: yeah <laughs> let's uh let get back on some serious things not just uh not just throwing out what we think people should listen to and watch <laughs> um yes yeah, so you keep mentioning ao 3 archive of our own and I thought we should just take a second to like talk about that because I find it very fascinating as a thing in and of itself like as you mentioned that it's an archive created for fans by fans and that it sometimes gets a lot of controversy people seem to get really angry about you know it allowing almost anything on its site yeah. and I've read that it has a really groundbreaking tagging system it does. that's like sets the standards for all sorts of other websites. And that's really interesting in like in terms of consent because it allows you to only read stories that you really want to read. So I wondered if you could just explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So disclaimer, I am actually a
2: tag wrangler on the archive of our own. I'm not speaking as a tag wrangler on the archive of our own here. I'm speaking as me. But um so the archive of our own has something called a, a curated folksonomy. Um, So if you think about how you archive things and how you make things searchable and findable, you you kind of have two broad options. One is you preset the categories that people can choose. So think of like drop-down lists. Um, So if you wanted to have a drop-down list for what fandom your fic is in and a drop-down list for the characters and a drop-down list for all of the relationships and whatever, then somebody would need to maintain those drop-down lists in the background. Um, And that's kind of very top-down curation, people have to make choices up front as to what they're going to call things, and it's quite a controlling way of doing it. The other way is kind of a folksonomy or kind of a a bit of a free-for-all. So if you think of Tumblr tags, and the reason Tumblr tags are absolutely unusable, is that users can just write whatever they want in there. So you can write things like Sherlock Holmes slash John Watson, but you can also write John Locke or you can misspell one of them or you can misspell both of them and all of those kind of mean the same thing, but if you click on one tag, it won't bring up all of the others and it's a bit of a mess and hence nothing can ever be found on Tumblr again. Um, so what the Archive of Rome does is it tries to kind of hybridise those two approaches and find a way that users have as much freedom to tag what they want in a way they want, um, and that in turn allows for the language that users use to evolve or the tagging system to reflect that and for culture to evolve on the archive of their own. But it also finds ways of making those tags actually all mean the same thing in the background. Um, So that's where the tag wranglers come in. um, And when we see things like, Sherlock Holmes slash John Watson and John Watson slash Sherlock Holmes and uh, John Locke and whatever else people used to tag that thing, there's a bit in the background where there's, and it's a fair amount of manual volunteer labor, but it's a bit in the background where we connect those tags and say, okay, if you click on any of those, it will bring up everything tagged with all of these things that mean the same thing. Um, so that's one of the big important things the other big important thing is that the archive own structurally has things like um, archive warnings that are mandatory in terms of use so if your story contains rape or non-con if it contains underage sex if it, it contains major character death and there's a fourth one which escapes me right now uh, you either have to use the relevant warning or you have to say you specifically chose not to use the warning and that way a reader knows okay this is what I'm heading in into or if you say I chose not to use the warning, that they know you know what, there may there may be some gremlins here. Um so it gives people the ability to make informed choices about what they engage with. Um, and again, there's also the freeform tags which are a lot less structured than the, the rest of the tags of so the relationships, the characters, the fandom tags. Freeform tags are things like like Dubcom, dubious Consent, where people can actually specify a bit more what's in the story and that gets used a lot both by writers and by readers to flag what's in there and sometimes it acts, it acts as advertising you know what if i want to read some dubcon i can go and find some dubcon um which is great but also if i don't want to read some dubcon i
1: can make sure that i'm not reading it that's so fascinating informed consent exactly yeah yeah it reminds me like do you remember way back in uh, was it like episode three when we talked about outrage and how like there's so many situations in which we're like triggered into our feelings without consent and that Mm. no one like warns us when we're going to be upset by certain things we were specifically actually talking about campaigning and politics a lot of the time and i really like that that is like you get to kind of say i want to be entertained and i want to be in control and choose like whether i want certain feelings to be impacted right now i'm fascinated how someone came up with that or several people came up with that in the first place. And we're like, yes, we're going to go into this. It's going to be really complicated, but we're going to make it happen. Some very clever librarians work for the AO3. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously librarians are the best people. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. We keep coming back to that. Ruth, anything else you want to ask about intellectual property and stuff?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess... I wanted to ask, it's a a big copyright, such a massive, massive topic. But yeah, intellectual property. Obviously, most of the time, yeah, it's like, (laughs) hmm. most of the time when people are writing fan fiction, they're writing things that some other people, group of or single people came up with. Um, Can people who then write those fan fictions also own the stories? Do stories at a certain point actually stop being owned by, I guess there's two questions here, because one is the legal question which we could answer, but perhaps it's not as interesting, I think, as the moral and philosophical question. Fundamentally, you know, who who cares about that? Because that's different in every different, in all sorts of countries and all of that stuff. But I think the question of, is there a point when an author doesn't really own something anymore? Like I think about Harry Potter in particular here as someone who is just like tired of J.K. Rowling and her continually saying like, this is X thing from the story that wasn't even like in the text. And then her fans are like, well, I read the text and being a good reader, these are my observations. And so like the community says, like we believe that this ship is like canon in the text and the author says no. And it feels like, strangely the fans have a greater understanding of the text and it like feels like it belongs to the fans more than the author i don't this know is, this is
2: where i get incredibly cultural studies on you because actually there's a fair chunk of cultural studies that deals with this kind of thing particularly roland bart and kind of the idea of the death of the author and that the, the meat of yeah. a text does not lie with, with authorial intent, it lies in the reader and in, in, the, in the interaction between the reader and the text. And frankly, I buy that to an extent. But one of the really interesting things you see in fanfiction communities is that people will very much subscribe to the death of the author of the original work. And I think there's a generational shift actually happening at the moment in that fans of my generation, maybe slightly younger, are very much, death of the author, I don't care what J.K. Rowling thinks. Slightly younger fans were actually much more invested in, for example, ships becoming canon and things like that. But let's say there's a significant chunk of fandom that goes, you know what, we don't care what J.K. Rowling thinks, we don't care about canon, this is our reading. And from this point onward, you step into the area three and it's ours. But equally, there is a lot of respect for authorial intent when it comes to fan fiction itself. So while we don't care what J.K. Rowling thought, we care what the author of the fanfic that we're reading thought. Um, and particularly when mm. it comes to thorny issues like consent, a lot of the time we want to know, for instance, that this person who wrote this rape scene understood that they were writing a rape scene and that they weren't thinking that this was fluffy and consensual. And that's where a lot of the kind of tagging and paratexts around the the fanfics, so things like summaries and titles and tags and comments and all of those things come in, and author's notes in particular, where you want some reassurance that the author knew what what they were doing. So it's a really interesting kind of dynamic between which authors we care about um, and particularly the authors that we see as powerful as having the platform to impose their reading of the text like J.K. Rowling, like Stephen Moffat, like Joss Whedon. You know what? They can shut up for a bit and let us do the interpreting and do the meaning making in the text. But when it comes to authors within our community, we see them much more as agentic and as owning their
0: own texts. But we
2: also Mm -hmm. react to those texts and reply to them and we comment and we write fix in response to those texts.
0: I think it's almost like uh, hearing you say this, it's almost like fanfic allows for us to understand the text as something that's continuously evolving yeah. or, or never finished. Yeah. Absolutely. Or with, you know, this like not locked down while other texts for some reason, like Harry Potter, maybe like you say, it has to do with the power attributed to the authors. Um, seem yeah. a lot more locked down yeah. and just sealed.
1: I, I certainly feel that like on the one hand I can go down that death of the author line and argue it really strongly and say you know well I always say like it's what's in the text that matters you know like if I can read it in the text I can base it on what the words say yeah. then I can like take that belief but I, I also do have moments when you see an author saying everyone's like completely misreading my text about like say the race of characters I see this happen when people say you're reading my characters as white, and they're not. Mm. And that's, you know, Mm. your assumption that everyone in a book is like you. And I'm never going to say that's the moment when you go, oh, well, death of the author, it's up to us. And you go, no, you have to listen to them. So I'm kind of saying I recognize that even in myself, there are moments when I'm doing that, like picking and choosing, on which times you're kind of believing and saying, like, you've got to listen to what the author is saying, and the moments in which you're saying, like, oh, who cares about... Your insistence that Dumbledore was gay or whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And the um, Rue in The Hunger Games comes to mind. Yes. So the Hunger Games trilogy, which was a big thing in young adult fiction a few years ago, um, there is a character who is positioned as somebody that the main character feels very protective of because she reminds the main character of her sister. And the, this character called Rue is described in the book quite clearly as a little black girl, whereas the protagonists, is possibly white, possibly, I don't know. The protagonist can definitely be read as white. Rue is definitely described as a little black girl. And most people, when re- or many people, when reading the Hunger Games trilogy, had canoned Rue as, as white. And when, was it Amanda Stenberg that was cast as Rue in the movies? Oh gosh, I never
1: remember actors' names. I, I
2: think it's Amanda Stenberg, who is, and at the time was actually a very young black actress. Um, when she was cast, she got a lot of abuse. Ooh, they possibly, um, got a lot of abuse for daring to be black and be this angel character that that people had invested a lot in and had felt very protective of, and how could this possibly be a little black girl? Um, So there was this
1: this massive outrage and people had clearly not read it in the book, despite it being on the page. And they couldn't understand this bit about she reminds me of my sister yeah. because they're different races yes. when what she means is she reminds me of my sister because she's vulnerable and sweet and i care about exactly her. oh people <laughs> white
0: <laughs> sounds yeah. about white all right <laughs> i'm with it. all right um so ruth can i ask my favorite question ask your favorite question go for it all right so we try <laughs> to always ask our guests about their origin story like at the end of the interview where I was like so what's your origin story because you do pretty cool stuff you study and write and do awesome things what's your origin story how did you oh dear. come to be you <laughs> well in in terms of
2: of of this I had kind of myself as at least five different people so that like over time I, I have <laughs> been five different people and I habitually refer to like past careers as past lives so I I guess it's one of those, in some ways I was in the right place at the right time, in some ways there was privilege involved in that. I spent the first 10 years out of university originally working in the private sector and being able to afford to then quit that job and and go and do a PhD, but I guess there's a certain amount of, I'm a migrant, I'm queer in a number of ways, I am a survivor of sexual violence, I have been a reader and writer of fan fiction since I was 13. And let's not think about that. Um, and I think about five years ago, all of those things kind of clicked, and I was in a the fortunate enough position that I could just quit my job and you know go and do something that I genuinely believed in um, and was passionate about, and haven't looked back since. Well,
1: congrats! That's so cool. Thank you. I think it's going well? <laughs> Looks like it's going well. Was it hard taking the jump though? Um, a little bit in some ways and
2: Mm. not in others so one of the hardest things was I I had to move across the country into a flat half the size to the one that that I was living in so I literally got rid of two-thirds of my books and that hurt (laughs) the Oxfam shop Mm. around the corner was very very happy they had a field day
0: Uh, Wow. Well, I'm sorry, but also (laughs) great that you could do it. (laughs) It's been good. (laughs) Well, thank you. Origin story.
1: Um, So thank you so much for... Answering all of our thoughts and diving into the topic of fan fiction. Thank you both for having me. Where can
0: people find you online, read your stuff?
1: The easiest place to find me is Elmira on
2: Twitter, uh, which has links to, oh, important in my Patreon and my coffee account because being caffeinated is very important. Um, I have a book coming out yes. in a couple of months' time um, called Sexual Consent, and part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series, which is kind of a here's a 101 on what you, think you need to know about consent. There you go. Actually, it's, it it sells itself as a one hundred and one, and then takes you do, down to the into the rabbit hole. So it's a it's a bit of a tricky book, but hopefully people it's a trap it's, it, absolutely, um, but a necessary one. Um, yeah, you know what? Find me on Twitter and ask me questions. That's
0: probably the easiest way. <laughs> oh, awesome! We'll definitely link to the book uh, when it comes out. Fab! It's on Amazon. And you can pre-order it. Terrifying! And pre-order it, people! <laughs> and ask your libraries to order it too. That's my favorite move nowadays. I just ask my libraries to order it. Excellent. Yes, please. All you need to do is write like two sentences of why it matters and it's you know usually you're like because it's awesome and librarians are pretty cool. Excellent. So
1: I was just gonna say sometimes I feel like our pod is like low-key and advert for public libraries like <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with that.
0: <laughs> just to wrap up thank you so much for your time and for sharing this with us it, it's it's been awesome and there's so much more to think about so I hope this gives people a conversation to have and something to do to read your book and get involved and read and produce and
1: yeah come do fun things. great. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I um, really appreciate you spending your night with us, and hopefully see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Oh, well, that was really good. Oh, it was so fun to have that conversation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come in with our typical afterthought, Marinella. What are yep. you taking away today? Oh dear, there's so much. Um,
0: I always say the same thing. There's so much that I want to take away from this. I don't know. I mean, there are a few things. First thing is like from an in. I don't want to say if, if it's an infrastructure thing, but the whole AO3 tagging system as a means to to have informed consumption, conversations and production of fictional works. It's fascinating to me because well, for a few reasons. One, it seems to be working. And in an era where we have um, all of this um, controversy around like, trigger warnings and and people not liking that and people accusing others of being sensitive and stuff this particular platform shows what informed consent looks like and how it just works and creates a better community and creates an environment where you can actually explore stories that you choose to explore Yeah, Um, and that's one thing and I think my favorite part and I think you can already see, it should not be a surprise I love uh, when Milena said that fan fiction allows people to explore consent not just to talk about it but to see how it feels like and Mm. how the lack of consent feels like and for me it's that feeling part that I have not thought about before this conversation it's how does it feel like how do you embody consent at that feeling level and I mean again it's the power of storytelling and I really I don't know I, I this was awesome like that's one of the things that I will take with me into future conversations for sure. What about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you, I was going to say the tagging stuff I actually found really fascinating. It's not normal that I like get really into the infrastructure of these kind of things. But I think an infrastructure, like a whole background of how this site was created that is specifically about supporting the community is really interesting like so often we have all of these sites like facebook twitter that are profit driven where like the concept of the infrastructure is purely you know drive clicks get hits make money and so you built a website specifically about supporting people and that i'm sorry if i'm not articulating this quite as well like I just find that a really interesting perspective because we don't hear it very often. I think most of the things that we use on the internet were built by businesses, were built commercially. And so when you think about it, that there's a massive website, a massive system that has authors and creators using it all the time, and that is specifically built by and for that community is really exciting and interesting and I am kind of happy that there are still spaces like that out on the internet because I feel like a lot of the time you know we're kind of increasingly just on a small set of websites like it used to be you know you'd go across the web, growing on all sorts of things. and Surfing the web. Yeah, but now we're like trapped in our apps. I saw someone Yeah, posting... we puddle hopping. Yeah, someone posted on Tumblr about being like a tiger in their cage, like bouncing back and forth between four apps. And I thought like, it's kind of true. Like how many times am I just opening up the same few social media apps and then closing them again? I guess my point is, it's nice to feel like you can be in a space... That isn't profit driven, that isn't commercialized, and that is really yeah. like putting the interests of the community first.
0: Well, and on that same note, it's that whole thing that uh, Milena was saying about how because a platform like AO3 doesn't have the commercial interest at the core, you can explore other things and then you can have survivor narratives that explore certain things in a way that other platforms like Tumblr would not be able to do, right? Because you want to, if you're Tumblr, you want to present to the advertisers an idea of how the community looks like and you cannot say that you have a community full of people who are willing to tackle hardcore themes, even if it's, I would say, in a heel way yeah
1: yeah it just prevents them from being open to censorship in the same way because they're not driven by those needs i also really like the point that they made about copyright and originality being gendered Mm, yeah definitely something else to kind of think more about like how much we ascribe what we see as authorial power and like this is the cortex and this is the real thing is like does that kind of idea of like single ownership stem from a patriarchal understanding of Creativity. Yeah. And I love the whole. I mean, we're
0: just rehashing the interview. So, <laughs> but yeah, I love that whole conversation too about the death of the author and like who has the authority over the story and how, um, I don't know, fan fiction seems to allow for texts to be a little bit more, I don't want to say fluid, but maybe like less locked down, more in conversation with the people who are producing them. Yeah.
1: Um, so I mean, it's cool. I still feel a bit squeaky about fan fiction written about real people, to be honest. Um, squeaky. Squeaky squicky you know (laughs) i i think that like it's really weird like if it was written about you how it would feel to find that someone was like imagining your whole life and writing it and publishing it out there i'm not saying that that's the thing where i say like it's squicky because i'm not saying no one should do it but it's something that i definitely feel just a little bit weird about
0: in no uncertain terms it would freak me the fuck out
1: but yeah that's true.
0: <laughs> I do not consent.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's the th- that's the interesting thing like to say that it's a community that has all of these like really interesting discussions about consent, tagging it and all of that stuff. But when it comes to real people, like how do you get consent from celebrities? And I think there was an interesting point about how much celebrities are in some ways fictional anyway. I mean they're mm. real people, but presenting fictional personas or like we are given right. a like fictionalized concept of them from social media, from magazines, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But I'm sometimes uncomfortable with that because like sure, there's a fictionalized concept, like a collective understanding of like what we think someone is.
0: But they are still a real person. And you can see it a lot in like we've talked about this in like TV shows or radio interviews where they present say a photo of a character made in the actor's likeness doing something ridiculous like stripping or like literally just you know in some sort of sexual scenario and they show it to them just for for giggles and to embarrass them but I'm like that's weird how is that different from any other form of bullying sort of well not even bullying just actually you're harassing people for, for giggles. It's weird. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't like the whole thing of using fan fiction as a tool for mockery either, because when you're doing that, you're mocking the actors by making them feel embarrassed that fan fiction exists, but then you're also mocking the people who create it, who never expected it to be seen. And I think that's the weird thing. Yeah. Like, once you say, like, well, here, here it is. Like, let me show it to you. Like, I don't think most people writing Sherlock fanfiction are expecting Benedict Cumberbatch to read it, and so, like, actually, what you're doing is you're taking that fan fiction and putting it on television without the author's consent. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, if you are a TV show presenter and you're listening to our podcast, don't do that. Correct. Just free, free presenting tips. Perfect. Um, anything else? I think i'm I think I'm all thoughts out right now. Perfect. what about you? Um
0: no, I think um people uh listen to the interview again because by the time you're listening to this, you've already heard the interview. um it's awesome. Uh, We're going to put stuff in the footnotes for you to read and... uh...
1: Including fanfiction
0: suggestion, yes.
1: Go read some of your first fanfiction if you've never read any, check it out.
0: Yeah, and let us know, um, did we miss something? Did we get something really right? Something that you do not agree with? Uh, Just be kind and you can let us know through Twitter at ThingsIntersect.
1: Yeah, we even have an email address. You can contact us on that if you like. Uh, Thingsintersect at gmail.com.
0: Or, you know, find this episode and other episodes at theintersectionofthings.com. Where can you be found, Ruth, if you want to be found?
1: I, I always want to be found. I'm on Twitter, at Nescient, It's N-E-S-I-E-N-T. What about you? I'm at
0: Undazed and Such. Please communicate in GIFs exclusively.
1: Thank you. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts be thoughtful and sweet
0: and share it with your friends that's the most important thing cool thank you for listening hope you enjoyed this thank you for your time and letting us hang out in your ears thank you ruth for your time and uh Milena, thank you for your time and sharing everything that you shared with us until next time bye bye